I want to tell you a story about four dead monsters. When they were alive, they provoked fear and revulsion and hatred. By the time they died, they had been forgotten. They were forgotten because they lived in the 1920s and 30s and they were about to be eclipsed by the greatest monsters of the 20th century, by Hitler, by Stalin, by legions of goose-stepping, swastika-clad Nazis herding mothers and children onto trains and into ovens. The word monster comes from the Latin monstrum, meaning a portent or warning. It's the root of demonstrate, which can mean to teach by example or to rise up in opposition. Monsters are here to challenge us and to teach us something. The four monsters I'm going to be talking about were all notorious in their time. They all made headlines, they were all put on trial and they all died disgraced, disillusioned and alone. They led lives that were oddly intertwined. But the strangest thing of all is that over 80 years later, no one can agree on what lesson these monsters were trying to teach or who the lesson was for. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts. My name's Tim Clare. This is a show about writing for writers and this week is the honours week on the podcast, which is where I talk about my first novel that came out in 2015 called The Honours. Uh, I'm talking a little bit about how I wrote it, some of the research and ideas that went into it, and... It's kind of also me building up to the release of my next novel, The Ice House, which comes out May 2019 and is a sequel to The Honours, or certainly set in the same world. You don't have to have read The Honours to read The Ice House, but they're in a linked world. I am doing this in part to hopefully uh, convince, cajole, persuade and maybe strong arm into not only purchasing my novel The Honours, and there are links to purchase it in the show notes of this episode and on my website, timclairpert.co.uk, uh, but also to pre-order my next novel, The Ice House, so the week it comes out, you'll get a copy straight away. This show uh, doesn't have adverts on it so it's entirely made possible by people supporting my writing career um i'm not expecting you to do it out of the kindness of your heart or even at all i mean obviously you know it might not be that it might not be for you but i'm going to be talking about it this week just to be able to talk about something that i've written that i'm really proud of and really enjoyed writing and really matters to me um and just so you know, you know, like, and if you've got a copy already and you might want to consider getting it as a gift for someone else for Christmas, uh, it just, those things really help me. Uh, my, you know, margins as a writer are really tight. The Honours has done pretty well so far. It hasn't been released in B-format paperback yet. It did, pre it's done pretty well so far, but for various reasons, including becoming a dad, you know, there's been big gaps between my two books and, uh, Money is really tight for me at the moment and it would certainly help to have people enthusiastically buying and enjoying and talking about my books. So I'm doing this as a way of just trying to get you interested in it and hopefully some people listening are going to go, oh yeah, cool, I haven't read, I've been meaning to get hold of that. Um, I'll do it. 
I've worked out, and I said this in the previous episode, but I've worked out if one in four people who listen to the to Death of a Thousand Cuts, this podcast, in a single week, if one in four of those people listen and decide, all right, all right, Tim, sounds cool, I'll uh, pre-order the Ice House, then um, because pre-orders all count as the first week of sales, it will go out in its first week as a bestseller in the UK. Definitely. So, you know, <laughs> I'm just I'm just putting it out there. That'd be super cool. And I, I, I'd love it if you did. And you'd be making a huge difference to me if you chose to. Uh, if you're thinking about getting it, all I'm saying is maybe slide that order forward and do a pre-order. Um, I'd be super, super, super grateful. And I'll just say, I've spoken to the uh, wonderful folks at the Indie Bookshop, uh, Mr. B's Emporium. And they have said uh, that they've set up a link, which I'll put in the show notes and on my website, for you to pre-order the Ice House through them. If you do that and you pre-order, they do worldwide shipping, so it doesn't matter where you are. Um, I'll make sure I drop in to see them before the books are sent out and sign all of them. So if you want a signed copy for you or anyone else, that's the place to go. And uh, let's say, let's imagine in my wildest dreams, um, they managed to get over 100 pre-orders which would be great for them i really like to be able to support the bookshop in that way because they've been so amazing they're so amazing at like pushing authors and getting people enthusiastic about reading and they've been amazingly kind to me um then if you manage to get over 100 then i'll i'll write some exclusive content to stick a little bit of something to stick in with those books via them um but you can you know pre-order from wherever's most uh, convenient and works for you Right, that's advert over. Let's get into the episode. So I'm going to talk about these four monsters. And the first was a man called Maundy Gregory. John Arthur Maundy Gregory was born in Southampton in 1877, the son of a clergyman. He started out as a teacher before leaving to become an actor and theatre producer in London. He quickly became a fixture of London's nightlife. Now, I want you to imagine if you've if you've not seen a picture of him, he had kind of like slicked, centre parted black hair, uh, a rather a rather menacing glower, and uh, he often affected a monocle. In 1918, as the Great War drew to a close, Monty Gregory approached the Liberal Party, offering to use his contacts to help them raise funds. He would act as a broker, selling peerages to the rich and famous on the government's behalf. At the time, at the end of the Great War, the upper classes in Great Britain were in crisis. The slaughter of male heirs had brought with it the extinction of many hereditary titles. Old families had been completely wiped out. Gregory offered a solution. He sold honours from £10,000 for a knighthood to £40,000 for a baronetcy, um, which is approximately 310000 to £1.2 million in today's money, transferring an estimated £1 to £2 million, or that's in today's money, £31 to £62 million, to the Liberal and Conservative parties. For himself, Gregory earned about three million quid a year buying the Whitechapel Gazette, which ran anti-Bolshevik 
and anti-Semitic opinion pieces, as well as establishments like the Ambassador Club in Soho and the Deep Dean Hotel in Surrey, which was run as a brothel. At his businesses, he played host to many celebrities and politicians collecting compromising information which he could later use for blackmail. The 1925 Honours Prevention of Abuses Act made the selling of honours illegal, but Gregory continued, even though he could no longer provide what he was claiming to. Those who paid him couldn't sue without themselves being prosecuted. But Gregory's lavish lifestyle meant he was constantly on the brink of ruin. His various establishments were run at a loss purely as opportunities for him to network and gather information. In 1930, he was successfully sued for £30,000 by the estate of a baronet who had died before receiving his honours. Gregory had made many enemies and the allegations against him grew more lurid. He had been living in Abbey Lodge in St John's Wood, a building that would later become famous as the Beatles Abbey Road Studios, with the ageing actress Edith Ross. Gregory was gay and their relationship was platonic. He had originally lived with Ross and her husband before they split up. In 1932, Gregory asked her for a loan, which she refused. Not long after, she changed her will and a few days later died. Gregory inherited £18,000. Scotland Yard would later exhume her body, suspecting he had poisoned her. However, Gregory had arranged for her to be buried in an area that frequently flooded with an unsealed coffin lid, and thus it was impossible to gather post-mortem evidence. In 1933, Gregory finally declared bankruptcy and moved to Paris, where he lived under an assumed name. He took his files containing the names of everyone he had sold honours, and via several sympathetic companies, the Conservative Party provided him with an annual pension of £2,000. Of course, we now know that Paris was not the best choice of refuge. In 1940, after the Nazis had occupied it, Gregory was captured and sent to a labour camp where he died. The names of those who bought peerages are unknown to this day. Our second monster was a man called Harold Davidson. He was born in Southampton in 1875, just two years before Maundy Gregory, the son of a vicar, and he ended up being a classmate of Maundy Gregory's. Like Gregory, he, after university, he was drawn to the theatre. One night, he was walking along the Thames embankment when he met a 16-year-old girl who was about to throw herself into the river. He learned that she had run away from home, had no money and nowhere to live. He saw to it that she returned home and wrote a letter for her mother. Later, he said, Her pitiful story made a tremendous impression on me. I have ever since kept my eyes open for opportunities to help that kind of girl. Though he loved performing, his family wanted him to become a priest and he eventually bowed to their wishes. In 1906, he was appointed as the rector of... Well, like, the pronun pronunciation here is a vexed question. Like, outside of the village, in... Norfolk and Suffolk, most people insist it's pronounced Stooky. That's my understanding. It's Stooky. But when I've actually visited the village of Stooky and chatted to some people living there, a lot of them actually call it just Stiffkey. I'm going to call it Stooky in this, but <laughs> if you're a resident who is angered at the world's refusal just to pronounce it, it's spelt Stiffkey. I think it's pronounced Stooky, but 
I'm going to, you know, some residents have told me otherwise. Maybe they were just razzing me. In any case, he went to the village of Stukey and became a popular preacher with a reputation for engaging sermons. He married an actress called Molly. While he was serving in the Great War, she became pregnant by another man. On his return, he decided to accept the child as his own. However, life at home became tense and he spent more and more time in London looking for vulnerable girls who tended to be ignored by the church. He called himself the Prostitute's Padre. He'd leave for London on a Monday morning and return late Saturday night, spending his time finding girls who he'd visit and give money to and even bring back to the parish to employ in his household. Sometimes he'd miss his train and miss the Sunday service or arrive late, rushing in and parking his bike against the altar. The stream of young female visitors to his parish aroused suspicion amongst the locals. Davidson fell out in particular with Major Philip Hammond when, in 1930, he failed to return to Stukey in time to lead the Armistice Day ceremony at the War Memorial. Hammond made a formal complaint against Davidson to the Bishop of Norwich. The Bishop's legal counsel hired a private detective agency. One report suggests they interviewed 40 women but were unable to find any evidence of immorality except from one girl, Rose Ellis. The detectives took Ellis to a pub, paying her a pound for every half hour of her time, as well as buying her a new coat and promising her work. The next morning, Ellis retracted her statements against Davidson, claiming she had been drunk, and her actual confession, never presented in court, detailed a ten-year association but little evidence of intimate contact except for one instance where she had lanced a boil on the rector's buttock. The key prosecution witness, Barbara Harris, was given a pound, seven shillings and sixpence a week as pocket money by the detectives and put up in a luxurious hotel. She claimed that Davidson had spent the night with her several times, although she had rejected his advances. The prosecution also produced a racy photograph of the rector with Estelle Douglas, who in the picture was completely naked from behind. Her coat opened from the back, from the front, the side Davidson was on, he was fully clothed. Davidson said he had been tricked and did not know she was naked beneath her coat. Looking back now, it is... It's, it's hard to say what the truth was. Certainly, Davidson had been barred from several tea rooms in London for pestering girls, but whether his pestering had an ulterior motive or whether he was just being an annoying, didactic Christian is unclear. The Major's vendetta against him was was deeply personal, as it turns out. Um, and, and not without reason, it seems like Davidson sometimes acted like a complete prick. In 1927, Major Hammond cleared some of the ground around his recently deceased wife's grave in Stukey Churchyard. Davidson wrote him an angry, patronising, breathtakingly insensitive letter in which he said, you have no possible right to interfere with it in any way without my permission, any more than I have the right to come and annex a part of your garden. It's easy to see why the recently bereaved major began harbouring a grudge. The trial of the rector of Stukey became a front page tabloid sensation, partly because Davidson funded his defence by giving interviews to newspapers. He was found guilty of five counts of immorality and defrocked. With huge legal bills and no income, he returned to his first career, entertainment. He appeared on Blackpool's Golden Mile, living inside a barrel with a chimney in it for his pipe smoke. He told the press, while I'm in the barrel, I shall be occupied in preparing my case. 
The performance attracted such crowds that he was prosecuted for obstruction and jailed for nine days. Later variations included freezing inside a special refrigerator and roasting in an oven while being prodded by a mechanical devil. In 1935, the freezing routine led to his arrest for attempted suicide. He won the case and received £382 in damages for false imprisonment. In 1937, he moved his act to Skegness, appearing in a cage with two lions, where he would tell the audience his story, presenting himself as a modern-day Daniel. One night, he accidentally trod on the ageing lioness's tail, and the male lion, interpreting this as an attack, mauled him. He died in hospital. Some reports suggest not of his wounds, but as a result of erroneously being given insulin. Our third monster is Henry Williamson. In 1937, the year Harold Davidson was killed by lions, Williamson bought some run-down farmland in Stookey from Major Philip Hammond, the man who had fallen out with Davidson some ten years before. Land values in England were an all-time low, driving many of the great estates to bankruptcy as their rent revenue plummeted. Williamson was an ex-soldier who became famous when he wrote the popular children's book Tarka the Otter, an emotive and poetic story of the life of an otter which celebrates the strength and merciless beauty of nature and in many ways read as an elegy for a lost rural England. Thomas Hardy praised the book, as did Ted Hughes, who became friends with Williamson in his later years and at Williamson's memorial address called him, quote, one of the truest English poets of his generation, end quote. Williamson was also a devout and open fascist. He believed urban life and the modern banking system had made Britain decadent, sickly and corrupt. He lectured friends and family on the new order that would soon rise from the ashes of the old. He became friends with Oswald Mosley and, in a masterful example of misgaging the public mood, dedicated the 1936 reissue of his novel quartet, The Flax of Dream, to Adolf Hitler, writing, quote, I salute the great man across the Rhine whose life symbol is the happy child. End quote. Despite having no experience of farming, Williamson decided to buy the Major's land in Stukey and start his own farm, based upon fascist principles. He believed that white bread was rotting the teeth of inner-city children and saw this as a metaphor for a decline in societal values. He and his peers viewed the honours scandal as the epitome of everything that was wrong with modern Britain, a country where the old certainties of honour and nobility had been obliterated by a pointless war and where power and accolades were available to anyone who could pay for them. He imagined creating a farm like the great feudal estates, where everyone knew their place in the natural order, working together in perfect harmony. The Norfolk locals were less enthusiastic, and in 1941 he was arrested and briefly locked up after they reported him to the authorities as an enemy agent, claiming he was sending messages to the Nazis and building roads to aid the coming invasion. Williamson abandoned the farm, exhausted, and moved back to Exmoor. After the war, he remained close friends with Mosley until the pair fell out when Williamson advised him to quit politics. Williamson divorced twice and continued to write prolifically, though none of his books found a wide audience. On his 80th birthday, he hoped to receive honours for service to his country, quote, as a soldier and farmer, end quote, and when... Astonishingly, the government chose not to decorate an unrepentant Nazi whose biographer claimed he had once dashed a kitten's brains out against the kitchen floor for stealing part of a fish dinner. He slipped into senility and soon died. 
Our final monster is Colonel Victor Barker. Like Williamson, he was a fascist. In the 1920s, he was secretary for the National Fascisti, the precursor to Mosley's British Union of Fascists. Like Davidson, his life was later made into a seafront stage show in 1930s Blackpool. And like Gregory, the stories he told about his past were a fabrication. Barker was instrumental in hobbling British fascism in the 1920s. His actions humiliated the National Fascisti and overshadowed all of Mosley's efforts in the 30s. In 1926, Barker received a letter intended for a different Colonel Barker. It was from the National Fascisti inviting him to join. Barker sent a two-word response. Why not? He moved into the group's Earl's Court headquarters, working as a secretary for leader Henry Rippon Seymour. He trained young male recruits in boxing and fencing, joined them on expeditions to scrap with communists and warned them against getting tangled up with women. One night in 1927, Rippon Seymour pulled Barker's pistol on a fellow National Fascisti member in a dispute over funding. In the following investigation, it transpired Barker's licence for the pistol was forged. Barker was brought to court, searched, tried and acquitted. It was only after a second court appearance, this time for bankruptcy and transfer to Wandsworth Prison, that Colonel Victor Barker was discovered to have been assigned female at birth, to have been married as Valerie Arkell Smith and to have given birth to two children. He later said... The fascists had never suspected, adding, quote, Believe me, one pair of trousers makes a wonderful difference to matters of this kind. End quote. He was convicted of making a false statement on a marriage register, having married two different women. The fascists in Great Britain never quite recovered. Mosley's wife, Diana Mitford, later said, quote, I soon discovered one must not mention Colonel Barker. Her name was Taboo, and Lady Evelyn preferred to forget she had ever existed. End quote. Barker himself changed his name to John Hill, then to Geoffrey Norton. He died in 1960 in poverty and obscurity and is buried in an unmarked grave. So, I've told you about these four people, these four humans, who were denounced at the time by folk as monsters. Locked up. Forgotten. And I suspect you have some thoughts about them. I suspect you've made some judgments about what you think of them. So what do we think? So, well, let's start at the end. On the face of it, Colonel Barker is the easiest of the four people I've talked about to like. I, he did exactly what he wanted to in a, in a time of huge bigotry and repression. He was forthright and tough. He albeit accidentally, dealt a body blow to fascism in Great Britain. Then he died in poverty. On the other hand, he was an actual fascist. I mean, he'd later claim becoming secretary was, quote, the perfect cover, but come on. He had a hand in beating up trade unionists, spreading anti-Semitic propaganda and fundraising for the Nazis. There's no way of parlaying that into a charming wilfulness or a kind of classic British eccentricity, unless, of course, you reduce him to a novelty, a character. As a human being, capable of moral choice, he made some truly horrendous choices. Now, 
when I first heard of the rector of Stukey, Harold Davidson, I, I assumed he was guilty. I, I heard the story. I was like, well, he was guilty of sin, right? Then when I did some more research into the case, when I started reading different accounts of it and read about Major Philip Hammond's grudge against him, why he had quite a... He had quite a motivation to want to see Harold Davidson taken down. And the unreliability of so much of the evidence, how one of the photos was actually stitched together from two different photos. Uh, I did be begin to wonder. When Davidson died, reports say the streets of Stukey were crammed with crowds of well-wishers who turned out for his funeral. Although I should say Henry Williamson... Uh, in his memoir disputes this, claiming the streets were mostly empty and the journalists just made it all up. Now, I spoke to someone who lives in Stukey now and she told me, I, I think the people who lived here thought he was a kind of saint. But on the other hand, he was popular and famous. I can't help feeling he has the classic profile of a sexual predator. Now, that is circumstantial, but... He sought out young, vulnerable women who had no support, whose testimony would be easy to dismiss, especially against that of of like a vicar, right? a popular vicar. He offered them money and he tried to wow them with glamorous tales of the theatre world that he'd been involved in. He repeatedly went to visit them in places where he and the girl would be alone. And his claims of naivety stretch credulity during his trial... He claimed not to know what a buttock was. He ended up confessing, I think it may be something just below the belt. And in 1936, after his de defrocking, he was arrested for pestering two 16-year-old girls at St Pancras Station. Allegedly, he had offered them auditions for leading roles in a West End show. And apparently during the Great War... He was caught inside a Cairo brothel, but claimed that he was ministering to the lost. I mean, I don't know. Like Lots of people say he was incredibly naive and he was doing these things at a time when it wasn't popular for the church to be involved in social justice and care about the genuinely dispossessed. I actually, I, like, I don't know. I don't have the key piece of evidence to make a judgment one way or the other. Absolutely. Perhaps the only thing we can be sure of is that in 1930s Britain, a sexually predatory vicar was a far greater, more newsworthy scandal than the thousands of vulnerable young women living in London without support or protection. Many of you whom turned to sex work to feed themselves, many of whom were visited by the politicians of the day and the big businessmen and the grand celebrities, many of whom worked in establishments owned by government fixer and honour seller Maundy Gregory. The, the church was certainly more interested in keeping its rural parishioners happy than for pushing for social justice. Now, Maundy Gregory seems a much easier baddie, right? Like, he raised money for corrupt politicians through fraud. He ran dens of ill repute. He literally walked around wearing a monocle and was surrounded by rumours claiming he had, for example, helped forge the fake Zinoviev letter that helped the Tories win the election. He, there were claims he'd bumped off radical left-wing politician Victor Grayson, um, as well as his friend, Edith Ross. 
but there is good reason to counsel caution with some of these allegations. The rumours were just that. Rumours. And indeed, many were openly started by Gregory himself, who boasted he'd been recruited by MI5 and the newly formed MI6. He was a legendary bullshitter. He cultivated an air of mystery and danger, and no one has ever produced evidence to back up any of the claims swirling around him. Maudie Gregory came from a modest background and found himself amongst Britain's rich elite where old money rubbed up against a new class of international super wealthy businessmen. He lived at a time when his being gay was punishable with jail or chemical castration. And he preyed not on the poor, but on society's wealthiest, exploiting their vanity, their hypocrisy and their willingness to break the law. Admittedly, like Victor Barker, his intentions had nothing to do with social justice, but he accidentally did more than, I think, any single man in history to undermine and devalue Britain's repugnant, archaic honours system. And as a consequence, he died in a Nazi labour camp, while all the politicians and corrupt knights and barons who had bought their titles from him remain anonymous and unpunished to this day. Etymology can be revealing, but it's important to acknowledge how we use a word now. These days, nobody uses monster to mean a sign or warning. A monster is something abhorrent, a beast, the opposite of a human. I would suggest our modern understanding of a monster is, in essence, that which can be killed without remorse. The zombie, the vampire, the orc, the alien, the Nazi. In Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, the narrator Offred remembers watching a documentary where they interviewed the mistress of an SS officer and how the mistress defended him. Quote, he was not a monster, she said. People say he was a monster, but he was not one. She did not believe he was a monster. He was not a monster to her. Probably he had some endearing trait. He whistled off-key in the shower. He had a yen for truffles. He called his dog Liebchen and made it sit up for little pieces of raw steak. How easy it is to invent a humanity for anyone at all. What an available temptation. End quote. If it is an available temptation, then it also seems to be the most easily resisted. Offred is pushing a familiar line, the idea that as soon as one admits nuance into an historical account, one becomes an apologist. I don't accept that it's easy to invent a humanity for anyone. I don't accept that it's even possible. Humanity isn't something one gets to bestow or withdraw based upon behaviour. It's inherent to every human being. I don't see any moral hazard in allowing that a person who committed selfish, cruel or obscenely violent acts might also have been capable of kindness, humour or remorse. My grandmother was in the Hitler Youth. I remember her telling me about how she passed Auschwitz station on a school trip and how she was asked why the station platform was covered in empty prams. She told me that the policeman at the end of her road served in the camp and when he returned, his hair had turned white and he locked himself in the attic for a week and then shot himself. She also told me about how her teachers would 
mimic her disability, pretending to limp on crutches like she did and encouraging the class to laugh. She told me how the nuns abandoned the hospital she was in at the end of the war, how she had to walk across the country alone, disabled, on crutches, how an American soldier she encountered had tried to force himself on her until she brained him with her crutch. How a Soviet soldier had taken pity on her and hustled her across the border, weeping. So, what then of Henry Williamson, the wife-beating, kitten-killing fascist? Must we accept that he is one of us? Is that really such a temptation? Or would it be easier simply to hate him? I certainly did when I started... Uh, working on the honours and I first encountered him and his life he, he came across even in his own words he came across as a pompous bigoted bitter coward loathsome he, he, he's so horrible to people in his farming memoir really withering and like consistently dismissive he, he goes to see his mum when she's on her deathbed and, and his final words to her are assuring her of the rise of the thousand year Reich. Am I really about to cape for him? Williamson maintained his life had changed during the famous Christmas truce of 1914 when Allied and German soldiers climbed out of the trenches, played football, sang carols and took photographs together. He was part of that, and then only weeks later, he took part in his first offensive, where hundreds of thousands of soldiers died. Nothing could be more calculated to impress upon someone the graphic futility, the maddening horror of war. He fought in the Somme and was invalided out of the army in 1917 with shell shock. He seems to have suffered from what we now know to be PTSD, for the rest of his life. He drank heavily, suffered from severe depression and contemplated suicide. He had outbursts of violent rage and his two marriages failed. John Sutherland quotes Williamson's son as remembering seeing him, quote, beating up my mother and bruises and screams. And I would come along and attack. And as soon as I would attack, he would start crying and say, what am I doing? that my son should have to stop me beating my wife. I think it was something to do with the pressure of war." End quote. I don't normally write with big themes in mind. That's not how stories really come to me. It's more like a, just a sort of chunk and a, a scene, an image. And then I follow a character and I sort of figure out the heart of the story, what it's about, or what these characters care about, what they're facing as I go. With the honours, it wasn't until I was maybe half to two-thirds of the way through my first draft that I started to get the sense that one of the things I'm most interested in as a writer is monsters. Or maybe more accurately, monstering. The selective denial of our fellow humans' humanity. The rhetorical inconvenience of compassion. When monsters appear, bringing warnings, it's never news we want to hear. But we always have choice. We can refuse to bear witness. We can shoot the messenger. How easy it is. What an available temptation.